everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Breshit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. This week's podcast is sponsored on the occasion of Diane Shoulder Abrams' 85th birthday by her adoring family, in honor of her love of Torah learning and her admiration for the work of Matan, with many brachot for years of health and happiness. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshad Vayigash opens with Yehuda's moving speech to Yosef that ultimately breaks down the smokescreen separating Yosef from his brothers. After the big reveal, Paro invites Yosef's family to come live in Egypt, and Yaakov embarks yet again on a migration, this time out of Canaan. He is so concerned, it seems, that God reveals himself, a sole occurrence of revelation in this entire episode, and promises Yaakov that this story will end well and that he will produce a great nation in Egypt. The Parsha also tells of Yosef's agrarian policies through which he turns the Egyptian citizens into tenant farmers of the state. The Egyptian people directly request of Yosef that they become slaves to the state so that they can survive. That's in chapter 47, verse 19. There is some irony in this interaction where Yosef, who was once sold as a slave, legally and willingly enslaves the Egyptian population. This, of course, foreshadows a different era of slavery to come. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting with a new guest, Rabbanit Mali Bravsky, who teaches Tanakh and Machshavet Yisrael at Michalat Mavaseret Yerushalayim, MMY, where she also serves as an in-house social worker. She maintains a clinical practice in Gush Etzion and teaches for Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Hebrew University. Mali, it's a pleasure to finally be sitting here with you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have you because, as I say in the introduction and as we've been exploring through all of these episodes we're really sort of dancing around this fine line of trying to both learn Torah and also gain psychological insight. And you were one of the first people who popped into my mind as someone who really, really is someone who's sort of, who straddles that boundary in her daily life. So I'm really excited to have this conversation and to sort of get into some of these phrases and psychological ideas that are, I think, essential to understanding these stories. And in today's episode, We'll look both at some of the patterns in the family of Yaakov, but also see how the family is able to sort of slowly move their way towards some sort of repair. So with that sort of instructory piece, take us into to this Parsha. It's, it sort of also begins in the world where we don't yet know who everybody is, and then, and then transitions us into the world where the brothers do finally know mm-hmm. who, who are the players. So... So take us in there. Absolutely. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I agree with you. I think there's so much to learn from the story of Yaakov's family. I'll say it like this. My son once said to me around the Shabbos table, he said, Ima, I don't understand. Why why is the family of Avraham, Avraham's family, Yitzchak's family, Yaakov's family, why do they keep making the same mistakes? And what I said to him was, what's amazing is not that they keep making the same mistakes. That's a given that that's going to happen, and I'll explain why in a second. What's amazing is that they're able to change the pattern and break the pattern and actually come to some type of ultimate growth and resolution. 
that's why I love these parshiot because I think there's so much to learn and to gain from that analysis. So what do I mean by that? Why is it not surprising that they make the same mistakes? Because that's essentially how intergenerational patterns work in families. We see is that legacies and patterns of behavior, interactions are handed down from, from generation to generation. Some of them are conscious. They're the um, rituals, the memories, the stories that we're told from our parents and grandparents. I would say maybe in the story of Avraham, that's the blessing of Avraham, Birkat Avraham, that is consciously handed down from father to son. Um, but a lot of them are unconscious. They're what we observe. They're what we've seen our family do, the family patterns. And definitely in the family of Avraham, we see a lot of, um, I would say, the legacy of chosenness, which means if you're going to choose one child for the continuation of the blessing of Avraham, there's one child that's going to be rejected. We see a lot of favoritism, which comes with that chosenness. We see a lot of trickery. Certainly, I mean, I don't need to spell it out. I feel like it's it's, mm-hmm. it's right there on the page. We, we've been spelling it out, don't Exactly. Worry. So I'm assuming that. that you've been talking about all of those patterns. <laughs> and I think they really culminate, like, you know, the perfect storm is Yosef and his brothers, I would say. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm sure we discussed it, but like, you know, starting with Shimon and Levi and uh, Rachel and Leah, there's just so much there. But that's really why I love this Parsha, because in this Parsha, we meet Yehuda, who... Just full disclosure, my oldest son's name is Yehuda, and I wanted to name a son Yehuda since like fifth or sixth grade when I realized that he is the hero. And I, I just heard this recently from uh, some somebody who was a mentor, and I respect very much. And I, I don't want—I won't quote her because I can't get the quote exactly right, so I don't want to misquote her. But it was something like, "The hero in the family is the person who is able to recognize and break the pattern." And so Yehuda is really the intergenerational hero, as is Yosef. It's interesting because I, before we started officially recording, I was telling you about this unbelievable parenting book I'm reading. And in one of the moments in the book, she says, when she says something that she assumes that many of your readers didn't know when they first started parenting and they're about to start like going through <laughs> shame and guilt over their own mistakes, she says, I want you to stop and breathe for a moment. Because if you're reading this book, you're a person who's about to change a pattern, and that means you're a brave person, which was just like an unbelievable, mm-hmm. unbelievably insightful sentence in the book. She's like, you're the pattern changer. Mm-hmm. So whatever mistakes you've made in the past, remember how brave and courageous yeah, you are. Exactly. So yeah, I totally, mm-hmm. totally uh, agree with that. I Meaning Yehuda was part of, he was uh, played a big role in the downfall, but he also was able mm-hmm. to obviously pick everybody else up with him. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you use the word bravery because it takes a lot of bravery because it's a a lot of internal bravery and a lot of external bravery. It's not an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the components of how you do that. But Mm -hmm. but I think bravery is a key word here. I think we have to honor the bravery that we have when we try to do this. So I guess that's the next question is, um, how do we do this? How are you able to change the patterns? So first of all, I love the image, the first image in the Parsha of Yehuda and Yosef. Uh, there's a Midrash Rabbah that describes Yehuda and Yosef as these two warriors, like on the phrase, Vayigash Yehuda, Yehuda f- comes forth to meet Yosef. Um, it describes Yo- Yehuda as like kind of girding himself up and he's this strong uh, warrior. And then Yosef realizes how powerful Yehuda is and he like kicks the stones of the marble that's in front of him. And like, it, it really is described as a clash of the titans. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that um, that's that's purposeful. The Midrash is doing that on purpose because they're really trying to point out to us these these are the two potential 
leaders. These are the two potential heroes. And I mean, it's not surprising they end up being the two chosen Kings. ones. If you talk about, yeah, if you talk about the, ch- the chosenness and part of the, I think the, I mean, I think we know this, but part of the beauty of the story is that we're able to find two leaders, but include an entire family, like when that's, you know, when we talk about chosenness. But to I get also back, think that yeah. the Midrash, just before I get mm-hmm. back there, is that ultimately what they're bracing themselves for here is an emotional duel, even though yes. they don't, they're not both aware of that at the same moment. And sometimes when we're in that moment of emotional dueling, it feels just as grueling as being in physical war. Absolutely. And so I think that like that image of turning them into warriors, even though they're clearly not with their, with their swords mm-hmm. outstretched, is because very often in that emotional battlefield, we feel just as in danger as we do when we're in the physical yeah, battlefield. A hundred percent. And I think I think that's also part of the message there is to see, is to see this, is to highlight that emotional energy that they are that they're both bringing. This is I think this is really the height. Mm-hmm. Perhaps this is the most one of the most emotional moments in Sefer oh, Breshi. Yeah, this is the know? climax. Of the this story. is it exactly, sure. exactly. Um, so the question of how it's done, how do you change patterns? So. Here now, I'll put on my like psychological cap. I also liked what you said in the beginning. I, I you know, we're not psychoanalyzing the vote, mm-hmm. but there's wisdom in Tanakh, and yeah. you know, like um, if we believe that there's so much wisdom in Torah, so sometimes we need to see that wisdom through the lens of something we've learned outside of Torah, yeah, and then sure. we see that it's there. So what what's there? So how do you change patterns? So there are three um, major components of being able to change patterns. Um, so I'll just go through them briefly. So I'd say this also where is this coming from? Okay, so this is coming from an article that I found actually. I, I literally meaning the fundamental ideas are coming from family systems. It's a psychological kind of lens through which to understand how people what if how people are affected and how they are able to change and grow and fix um, their inter- their personal issues and their interpersonal issues. So that's really where it comes from. So I'd say mm-hmm. so I found this article if you want I can kind of send it to you. Later, I can look up right sure, now. Sure, we'll, we'll it. link it in that Exactly, you can link it. But um, it's basically based on Bowenian, Marie Bowen. Um, is a famous, very well-known, one of the fathers of family therapy. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's growing out of that. But I think it incorporates, and the truth is we're not going to talk about it, it also incorporates some of the brain science. I just love the article because it, it's the article that gave me these three points. And, this, and it's just beautifully said. Like, it, I mean, this is truth and it's known, but the way that it was put together in this way, I found so just concise and perfect. So what are these three points? So the first one is the ability to change your perspective. And the way he describes it is waking up from the spell of childhood, right? When we're children, we see reality through the lens of how, we, how we're experiencing it as a child. And there could be a lot of pain and hurt in the way in maybe things our parents did, maybe things our siblings did. Um, but as we wake from the spell of childhood, we are able to kind of zoom out and see our parents as real people and recognize that they have their own story mm-hmm. and that they have their own experience and that we can see the bigger picture of what they're experiencing. And we see that very, very strongly in Yehuda's speech to Yosef, right? It starts with Yehuda telling Yaakov's story from Yaakov's perspective, right? He understands, he says, I have this father and he's very old and he's able to say, he, he has one beloved son because he loved this child's mother. He's talking about Benjamin. And that shows you that he's able to understand, right? Instead of being hurt and feeling neglected, he's able to see through Yaakov's eyes. Yes, Yaakov did love. It's a, he's able to say, my father loved his other wife more than he loved my mother. And he actually feels connected to those children in a very deep and profound way. And instead of 
taking that to a place of pain and hurt and rejection, he's able to understand his father. And that's step number one. Now, the important part is step number two, because obviously that's very painful, right? Meaning sometimes it's sometimes it can be healing because you can recognize that what's happening to you is not, you know, for example, here maybe again I'm not psychoanalyzing Yehuda, but in a parallel, you know, perhaps hypothesis, you would say a child like that might suddenly realize, oh, my father doesn't it's not that he doesn't love me or that I, I did anything wrong. This has nothing to do with me. This has to do with something that happened completely unrelated to me, and that itself can be healing. However, there's still pain, and there's still healing that needs to be done, which is why the second step is really self-care and reparenting. Take care of those parts of yourself um, that were hurt. You need, to, you need to acknowledge them, recognize them. The way I would say it is, 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 is mature and, and kind of reparent yourself and um, I think Yehuda did that last parsha. I don't know how much you you discussed in your podcast the story of Yehuda and Tamar, but to me, that's the story, right? Yehuda's initial um, impetus after the disaster that he saw of of selling Yosef is just totally cut off from the family and leave. Mm-hmm. And I happen to think Tamar is one of my heroes, or heroines, or however you want to describe her, because she is able to take Yehuda through that process mm-hmm. of learning to get past anger and rejection and cut off and continuing those patterns, right? He cuts off his two kids and kind of throws them to the wolves and finally take responsibility, which is a big part of this is taking responsibility for yourself and saying, okay, I'm responsible for my choices and my behaviors. And therefore he kind of learns to take responsibility for his own family. And that sets him up to be in the position now to take responsibility for Binyamin which enables the family to be reunited. And I think that um, we see that Yehuda has done this work in the ability to, to the self-regulation that he has in this story, right? In the way he tells the story to Yosef. He's, he's, he's calm, he's measured, he's collected, he's strong, mm-hmm. right? He has a place clearly for his own emotional reality, but he's matured enough to know how to take care of that part and therefore to speak from this place of understanding Compassion, I would say, is there as well, and strength. And then the third piece is what's called self-differentiation. And this is, I think, a fundamental piece of family systems, but it's so important for all of us to understand, which is the ability to see your own autonomous self, the ability to grow into who you are, which again, it comes with taking responsibility, but it's also seeing yourself as se- separate from your parent. You're an author rather than a victim yeah, the wor- of the, the word story agency of your life. Comes up for agency, me. exactly. Yeah. Agency, taking agency. You only have agency over yourself. You can only change your own patterns. And once you're aware of that, you can stand up for your needs and set your boundaries, which is really an important part of this because you have to keep yourself safe. But then you can also share your perspective and, again, ask for what you need, but also have room to understand what other, other people need and make the choices that you think are, are ethically correct and also i think the most conducive to growth for yourself and for the people around you and that i think is is what Yehuda does right he's like i am now in the same situation i was before where i sold my brother into slavery and here is his surrogate you know it's the next kid Mm -hmm. this time i'm not going to make that mistake i'm willing to be the slave and i'm willing to let him to assure his freedom and when yosef sees that yosef realizes that there's been deep repentance in the family and that's what enables the smoke stream to come down so that's yehuda Yosef is a different story, but maybe I'll stop for a minute. You know. So just to summarize those yeah. three those three components, we have seeing parents as real people, which is something mm-hmm. that even anybody who's not exposed to family systems, I think we all 
we all go through that moment. The question is, are we able to then utilize that to see our parents in a more humane way? That's another step that not everybody gets to. It takes a certain maturity and perspective to get there, whether it's our parents as real people or it's seeing our siblings as real people and not just our siblings. That's a topic that I feel really strongly about in general. Uh, sometimes when we treat our siblings as siblings, it actually makes us fall as opposed to if we would just look at them as real people, we would treat them very differently. Uh, and the second is self-care and reparent and reparenting, which means you have to acknowledge, as you said, the fact that there was hurt. Like he can't just pretend that Yehuda wasn't hurt by the fact that his father loved a different woman more and favored those children. And we had an episode speaking about how perhaps what precedes the Dina episode is the fact that Yaakov ranks his family. Like mm-hmm. how, how can you not see those two as connected? I couldn't Absolutely. unsee it after Rachel Sharansky saw it for us and yeah. with us. Uh, and, and that's also this Shimon and Levi, right? Yes. That's, that's what precipitates that exactly. whole that was that up. was that whole that yeah. whole episode there, uh, and the third is is self differentiation as seeing yourself as separate from your parent or your family unit, and then giving you the the agency to to behave differently. I want to add one piece, which is that I do not think it's an it's an intentional illusion. So the pasuk always strikes me in chapter Mem Dalid forty four pasuk Lamedalid. How can I go without Benjamin and see the evil or the sadness or the desperation that will befall my father? And I always feel that not only is it, uh, we've had this circle of repair from within the Yosef story where they weren't able to see how much pain they were going to cause their father by doing this to to Yosef, but it strikes me as also connected to an earlier episode where a child sees sees their parent, but isn't able to see them properly. And that reminds me of Noah and his son, um, where he where he's viewed, he's indecent, he's not dressed appropriately, and and it says Vayar, okay, that he's seen uh, by his son Ham. And there also we see that a child sort of views the parent, but but in an incomplete kind of way. Mm-hmm. And whenever I get to this pasuk, I always think that not only is it, again, completing the cycle here, but we have for the first time a child who's really, as you said, able to see their parent as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not something that's shameful. It's not something that is hurtful, but they're able to behave how two adults would behave with each other, obviously with reverence, right? But mm-hmm. But that piece always really, really moves me about how Yehuda also, it's, it's a tikkun for like a broader cycle of, of a seeing mm-hmm. that was inappropriate. And here we have a seeing that's empathic, mm-hmm. finally. Absolutely. Yeah. It also makes me think about Yitzchak and how he was seen. You know, it's a lot of food for thought there, but yeah. there's a, it feels like there's a tikkun there also. Yeah, there's something here that's intergenerational. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not just in the family of, of, uh, of Yaakov. Yeah, for sure. So, so let's see also what happens with Yosef okay. in, this, in this episode. So what strikes me most about Yosef is that I see, so Yehuda is the model of changing the pattern. For me, Yosef is the model of forgiveness. Now, again, the word forgiveness is a tricky word. And um, I actually feel very strongly about this as, as an issue of what forgiveness exactly means. That's another reason I liked unpacking this concept of forgiveness and recognizing that there are different types of forgiveness or different levels of forgiveness. 
different layers of forgiveness, maybe, um, where you can have genuine forgiveness, which I think includes an awareness on the side of the party that wronged the other party and a full acknowledgement, apology, restitution to the degree that that's possible. And then the, 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 the harmed side able to forgive and let go. Um, but there's also something which is, which we can call rather than forgiveness, acceptance, which is the same ability to let go. Um, but it, it, it's less, um, it's a little softer. You, it, it, you don't have to reach that level of full restoration and repair. And I, I don't think that's possible in the story. How could you reach a level of full restoration and repair um, after what happened to Yosef? But Yosef, Yosef's okay, right? And I think the brothers realize it, right? The brothers their whole lives, and we see this also in later Parshiot, they're so aware of the fact that like what they did can never actually fully be undone to the degree that they don't actually believe that Yosef can forgive them, which causes Yosef great pain, but that mm-hmm. I hope you discuss in a future podcast. We're going to get there. Yeah. yeah, but Yosef, I really, I believe that he, that's my reading here, is that he genuinely is able to accept and let go and Forgive in that sense. He's not harboring um, resentment. He's not harboring anger. He's just not. And the question is, what? Why not? And I think for Yosef, I think there are two pieces that 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 can take them at least to reconciliation, which is our goal here. So before you move forward with the how, I just I'm smiling because there's this great piece. Okay, it was a blog piece by Professor Josh Berman, and it came out uh, in. September 2021, and it says, it says, no apologies, just a kiss, okay? Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, it's one, you don't usually expect to read, you can read a blog post and it's nice or it's something, somewhat insightful. I was blown off my seat when I read this, and it really dovetails the piece that you just brought right now and that initial exploration of, of Yosef and what does it mean to forgive? Maybe it just means also to make peace with and move on. It doesn't have to be that. So he basically says, a very, very quick summary of his of his article, that there are cultures of forgiveness and cultures of reconciliation, okay? And he says that there is no word interpersonally in the Torah, okay, for mechila. That is a Talmudic word. In the Torah, the only person you ask for slicha from is from God. Um, and there is no word for apology, okay? So that the semantics are really instructive here. They point to a culture and I'll also just say that we can look at parallel cultures today that I would say are less westernized than ours, and we see this very strongly, that we in Western cultures have a very strong emphasis on saying sorry, on apologizing, on righting wrongs, but, but that's not necessarily what happens, certainly in a lot of ancient societies. And he goes through a bunch of examples where we have these really hard stories of David and Shalom, okay? And we have also the story of, obviously, of Yosef and his brothers. And we have also Esav and Yaakov, where there isn't a conversation where everybody owns up to their piece of the story. What you have, he says, is a kiss, mm-hmm. okay? That that kiss is instructive and signals reconciliation. And that it wasn't necessarily even important in this society, for people to say, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have sold you, that was not necessarily at all their goal of what they wanted to achieve in this interaction. I'll just read one quote. 
He says cultures of forgiveness are usually cultures with a strong sense of the individual, right? That's us. The apology of the offender allows the release of guilt. It allows for the aggrieved to achieve emotional closure. Where forgiveness is at a premium, the offender must do the work of accepting blame and committing to a new path. Only by writing the self can the offender hope to write the relationship. I'm skipping. By contrast, cultures of reconciliation, i.e. in the Torah, tend to focus on the collective. Who I am is entirely bound up by who we are, the bonds we share, the common goals to which we aspire. When a relationship is ruptured, a premium is placed on re-achieving harmony with those around me. Here, value is placed on letting go. Introspection by the offender and offers of apologies are, of course, always welcome, but not all are able or willing to do that work, and those cannot be preconditions for restoring harmony. I'll just one more sentence of his. And he says, cultures of forgiveness emphasize the peace within us, and cultures of reconciliation emphasize the peace between us. Cultures of forgiveness seek to clear the air about what transpired between the parties, and in cultures of reconciliation, the air about what exactly happened is clouded by the smoke of the proverbial peace pipe. Now, I think that this was so moving for me to read because while we may function in a society or in a culture of forgiveness, many of us know that we have interactions where we're never able to achieve that. And the question is, how do you live at peace with those people, with those family members who there is never, what does it look like to simply make peace with or reconcile, or in Hebrew, I would say, be mashlim, if there is never going to be some formal conversation of an apology? And so that piece just really came up for me when you were explaining this whole idea about about Yosef, because I agree that Yosef really gets to this place where it, it's not important for him. He even gets some really serious admittance of guilt from, by his brothers, like way more than we would have even, we would have assumed. They're unintentional. They don't mean to say it to him. They don't know it's him when they say it. But he does have some degree of, of feeling like, okay, they got it. But ultimately, as you said, he's not even looking for that in his final interactions with them. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I do think it's very nuanced and complex because my personal theory about what, what Yosef is doing this whole time, why is he, why did he set them up? Why did he take Shimon and Levi? Why did he send them back and say, don't come back without Binyam? And then, what, look, then take the Binyamin's thing and said, fine, I'll keep him as a slave. I think he's actually is looking to see yes. whether there has been that change. But I agree with you. I don't, I personally don't read it as for his own personal gratification. I think it's because Yosef is a dreamer and he knows that the family, it's not time for the family to be reconciled until the these patterns have shifted. I think he's looking for these shifting patterns, but I think in terms of his personal relationship with his brothers, I think it's 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 really true. He's he's not he's looking for that reconciliation. Mm-hmm. That's what he's looking for. Yeah. That's all he wants. And he even gives them an out because that, when yeah. they when they are feeling horrible, he says don't even go there. Mm-hmm. He says God had a plan, right? That's right? He doesn't even want them to go down that sort of like self-assessment mm-hmm. guilt pattern. He's so over it. He's yeah. already somewhere else completely. He's done a reframing of his life and he doesn't need them to to validate him in that same way that he may have needed, you know, 15 years earlier. Okay, but I interrupted you in your point about Yosef. Oh no, so that's basically what I was saying, which is the the path towards that type of forgiveness is really to be able to see a larger picture and have gratitude. And that's what he does. As you said, Like his perspective is, there was a purpose to this. God had a greater plan. I'm okay with it. There's a phrase, take the best and leave the rest. Mm-hmm. right? And that's what nice. he's willing to do. right? He's, he's going to take the best out of this whole experience. He's going to also take the best out of his brothers and who they are. And he's willing to leave the rest. And that, I think, is, is maybe the key to being able to do that. 
that reconciliation thing. And the other point I'd, I'd like to make here, which I think is also really important for us, is that there's this, you know, a lot of people are very concerned about, wait, but it's, it, it's not okay. They want it all tied up with a happy bow and they want everybody to be dancing in a circle of, you know, light and happiness and peace and full understanding and all of that stuff. And that's not what we get here, as, as I alluded to a little bit previously. The brothers are still afraid that after Yaakov dies, that Yosef is still harboring fears. Mm-hmm. And they, again, say something that may or may not be true, that Yaakov may or may not have told yep. them. So, you know, that leaves us a little uncomfortable because we're like, I thought we had a happy ending. And I think the message here is that imperfect endings are also happy endings. There's, mm-hmm. there's a concept also in psychology called um, the good enough. Yep. It comes from Winnicott. Yep. Um, Donald Winnicott he talks about the good enough mother, which I think all primary caregivers should hear, which is, it's not even that it's okay to be the good enough mother, meaning you have to, um, you know, feed your child enough times when they cry and understand what they needed and, you know, like, uh, not think that they they were just had a, needed to be burped when they needed to be fed or needed to go to sleep when they needed to um, be changed or whatever it is. It's, first of all, A, you need to meet their needs enough times and that's actually good enough. But B, it's actually important for the child that you fail sometimes because the child needs to learn that in relationships, their sometimes- needs will not always be met. Yeah, but yep. more than that, right? That's, that's for the child to learn. Your needs will not always be met. But also our relationship can remain intact mm. even if I make a mistake. We can repair mistakes because that's what's going to happen. We're humans. We're going to fail each other. We're not always going to be able to meet each other's needs. It doesn't mean we'd love each other any less. It just means that we're human and that we're going to have to learn how to constantly be coming back to that place of repairing and reconciliation. And so I think what we have here is a good enough family, right? A family that went through a tremendous process, came to a really different place than where it was. But you know what? It doesn't mean it's perfect, but it's really good enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important message for all of us. Just, just A, for ourselves, you know, to kind of let ourselves off the hook. B, to have that grace and compassion for our family members and let them off the hook where, in the places where they're not, where things are not fully perfect. And also to see our families. It's okay. We are all perfectly imperfect. Well, yeah. uh, you know, and, if we and just, remain with this image in our mind of where it has to go and it has to be some wonderful, sweet place, then we're just going to sort of set ourselves up for a life of disappointment. And you need to have like a realistic vision of where we could be, what our relationship would look like with that sibling or with that parent and and be happy with that. By the way, it's also people talk about a lot also in marriages, which I know know you know that, but I'm just saying that for the readers, Mm -hmm. the good enough marriage, the good good enough personal life, meaning these these are really, really key concepts because for, I think, a whole host of reasons, certainly in our modern world, we've We've created very idealistic pictures of how things are supposed mm-hmm. to look. We don't need to only blame, you know, social media for that. I think it came long before that. Absolutely. But we have a lot of these very idealistic pictures, and they set people up for a tremendous amount of disappointment. And and I agree with you that this that this story comes to tell us. Yeah, even at the end when we thought we like came really far, they again fall into a pattern of possibly lying. And but then Yosef comes out again, really in my eyes, being a real hero mm-hmm. in the last chapter of Breshit, and saying. No, 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 like, we're good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to mm-hmm. take care of you. I'm here. Again, I remind you, this was God's plan. It wasn't your plan. Stop assuming. Mm-hmm. I think what also a beautiful piece that I, I feel comes out of what Yosef says when he repeats at least three or four times this idea that it was God's plan is that he, he says, 
you, and this goes back to your first point, you need to realize that you're agents of change, but don't overestimate mm-hmm. how powerful you are in the world. And that's this like a beautiful a joining of a theological religious worldview and a human worldview. Whereas like in the purely psychological perspective, we look at human agency as the be all and end all. And what Yosef does is fuse it. Oh, that was what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. He fuses it with, with the theological perspective. And it says, Adkan, right? Adkan, take responsibility for what you did. Mm-hmm. Like there was a broader plan here. And I think that it's not just a cheesy, get someone off the hook thing. I think that it's a genuine byproduct of having a religious yeah. worldview. And I think that it's also a really powerful piece of the story. I love what you're saying so much because <laughs> I really do. Because I think that's something that I'm starting to realize more and more, which is that the pathological, I would even almost say, need for control and thinking that it's all up to us is such a cause of the stress and distress that we experience in our lives and yeah. the overtaking of responsibility and the ability to 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 kind of recognize that as you're saying like a theological perspective here and understanding that there, that there's a bigger picture and there is somebody in charge and the person in charge the the god in charge knows what he's doing mm-hmm. has a has a direction for history and you can, as you know, they say, the 12 steps, let go and let God. Mm-hmm. It's, as you said, it's not just a cheesy um, slogan. It's transformative in people's lives, which is why we see that. This is a whole different conversation, but one of the ways out of addiction, because addiction is really about not being able to handle the distress of life. One of the ways out is the peace of surrendering. You have your agency, you have your place, right? That's the serenity pray- prayer, mm-hmm. right? The wisdom to know mm-hmm. what I need to do, but also the serenity to, to, to put the rest of it on the higher power, but yeah. again, for us in the Torah, it's, okay, Yosef, there was a bigger picture. Hashem even says that. God says that to Yaakov in the story. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. I've got this. I've got the bigger picture. You, you guys will come back. It's yeah. going to be okay. Um, so I, I love that piece because it's such an important piece for all of us, I think, because we all struggle with that sense of, of, I think, the weight of our choices and giving a little bit more space to a bigger picture is can be very, very helpful. The last thing I want to mention is that I found this idea by Rabbi Sachs very, very moving, where he talks about the entire Sefer Breshit, the whole book, as the story of a family. And he basically argues that until the family learned how to get along with each other, we couldn't function as a nation. And so the trajectory of Sefer Breshit is moving from individualism to learning how to get along with each other to the family learning how to get along with each other. And then they are the Jewish people and then we can move into Sefer Shemot. And to me, that's such an important message because I really do believe that if we want to change the world, the way to start is to change ourselves and to change our relationships with our nearest and dearest. And that will actually ripple out to our communities, to our nations and to the whole world. Molly, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really beautiful. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.